So uh, uh, first off, if you drive a Land Rover, your uh, alarm's going off out front, but you know you can sneak out quietly. But so that's our Sabbath video um, from our young adults, and it's really awesome that when we uh, when, when I <laughs> when I preached on that and talked about Sabbath, the next week Zoe and uh, Sophia came up to me and they're like, and I was sitting out in front and they walk and go, "We are Sabbath and hard today." I was like, <laughs> "All right, that's great." But uh, about a dozen of us just finished up uh, last Sunday a five-week uh, series on Sabbath of just learning what does Sabbath really mean? What does it look like? And I know even personally, having grown up in the church, I had no idea what Sabbath was. Most of the things I did know about Sabbath were wrong, but it's truly probably the most transformational discipline that we talk about when we go through our Pathway series. And so I invite all of you, like, figure it out. If we need to do another class, let me know. But it's worth the effort. It's worth the time. And, I mean, does, it, does everyone need rest? Does anyone need rest? Just, just a few of you? Okay, good. The rest of you are lying. But that's okay. <clears throat> We're in church. We can take care of that. But anyway, just think about Sabbath. Let me know. And I encourage each of you in that. So, um, so I'm Eric Eaton. I am one of the pastors here. Scott is um, somewhere in Greece today, sailing around somewhere. But just pray for him. I think they're having a great time. They seem to be. We get random pictures here and there. But kind of, kind of like him, you know, as many of you know, my spring was kind of busy. Uh, I spent, took a bunch of youth down to Peru for about a week. I was home for two weeks. And then went to Ukraine for three weeks. And coming back from Ukraine, our flights, we had flights that were canceled. We had flights that were delayed. Uh, I ended up didn't getting to uh, Denver Airport until 1.30 in the morning. Thankfully, my wife, Erica, had already had a hotel room, so she just picked me up because <laughs> it's about a 35-hour day for me at that point. So finally, get some sleep. We drive back to CB, and I met with a jury notice uh, that I got while I was gone. And I honestly didn't think much of it because, you know, in Gunnison County, most things get settled before they go to trial. So I was like, okay. But a couple weeks before I was supposed to go, I started checking the website. Sure enough, the two weeks before canceled, two weeks after canceled, my still a go. So I go down there at 8 a.m. on Monday morning, and, I, and they tell us early on this is going to be a three-day civil trial. I go, oh, great. But they only needed seven of us, and there's 50 in the room, so my chances were good. And I am told that if you put down you're a pastor on those forms, that they're like, we don't want pastors. But not this guy. Yeah. Yeah. So I was chosen out of that. My odds are not good. So I spent the next three days listening to arguments, listening to lawyers talk, listen to testimonies, and just all about this case. And I was just taking like copious amount of notes. I don't think I've taken that many notes in seminary. But I was in there, and I wanted to be diligent and do the right thing. So after hearing the closing arguments, they send us off into the jury room where we decide the verdict. Now, the first thing we have to do, though, before we talk about the verdict is decide who's going to be the jury for a person. I don't care how old you are. I don't care who you are. If you're in a situation where someone has to rise above the rest, we're all like third graders on the playground trying to figure out who's going to be the kickball captain, aren't we? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. So that's the first thing we do is figure out who's going to be the jury four person. And without hesitation, a couple of people are like, Eric, he needs to be the jury four person. Of course, in my head, I'm thinking, of course. Like, I bring wisdom to this. <laughs> I mean, my keen insight into what's happening and, and so, you know, that's where my mind goes, because I'm not right. But anyway, out of curiosity, I go, what, you know, why do you want me to be the four person? And without hesitation, the lady next to me goes, because you're the biggest. 
So, so immediately I think like, do we have to fight our way out of here? Is this something I don't know? Like, I, I think I can take, take the defendant, but I'm not, like, now I was concerned. But, you know, I was put in that place of being the jury full person, and it was one of those moments of kind of like that humble smack. You know, you think you, you got it going on, you think you're a little bit uh, brighter, smarter, stronger, faster, beautiful, and then all of a sudden it's that, it's that one moment where someone says something, a truth bomb, and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, you're right, okay. Because I was chosen as joy for, for person over something I had zero control over, like my size. Evidently all this gray hair is faux wisdom, folks. There's nothing behind it. This is the remedial sermon you're getting today just to let y'all know that's what's going on. But that's where we are in life is those reminders of humility are important, aren't they? I think we all experience them. We have all can remember a time in our life where we kind of got a little too full of ourselves and we hit a brick wall and went, oh yeah, sorry. But I think those are important reminders of who we are, not only as human beings and the need to be humble, but who we need to be in Christ. Like who do we need to be as true followers of Christ and being humble like he was? So this morning, we're going to continue on in our invitation series as we're going through the book of Philippians, which is an amazingly rich book. And I encourage you to read this on your own. There's just so much in there, so much going on that you can kind of glean from. As Paul's writing to a church that he loves very dearly, a church that he really, really enjoys being with. And so this morning, as Tom read, we're in Philippians 2, 1 through 8 where the majority of this passage is Paul telling this church at Philippi about the need for unity and the need for humility. Because humility is a big part of the biblical narrative. It's a big part of what we see all throughout the scriptures. And this is what Paul was talking about, specifically in verses 5 through 7, when talking about Jesus. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, a, with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, Jesus showed us that equality with God was not something to strive for, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant, and in doing so, he reigned obedient even to the end of a cross. This is definitely one of those moments when we look at Jesus, when we look at what he did, when we look at a characteristic of him, It's probably something we should take to heart. And not only that, probably something we should integrate into our own lives. And in order to do that, in order to integrate it, it's going to take a lot of work and humility on our part. And to understand that better, I want to understand that we all have an altar in our lives. And this is that representation. This is an altar. We all have an altar in our lives. What we choose to put on this altar is what we're going to worship and how we're going to spend our lives. We have things that throughout that Paul tells us in like 1 Corinthians 6, that you know, your, your body's a temple. In Romans 12, 1, he says, your, your body's a living sacrifice. It's your spiritual act of worship. Our bodies mean something. And, and what, what he's alluding to is, you know, before Christ came, you had to go into the temple, and the, and the altar was in the temple, and you had to do your sacrifice in the temple. When Jesus came and died on the cross, the curtain was torn and the temple no longer was, the, the altar is no longer in the temple, but it's in our lives. It's in our hearts, because that's where God dwells. That's where Christ, Christ dwells, is in us, because that's what he's chosen. So we have these altars, where ideally God dwells. And that's the powerful part. But it's important to discuss this, because like, if you heard that old saying, you know, the problem with 
living sacrifices as they keep crawling off the altar. And that's where we are. Because we keep crawling off the altar. We don't know what to put up here. And we're so confused about what we're supposed to put up here and what to pursue in our own lives. It confuses us and fills us up with our own selves. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna like go after money and you want money on your altar, then you're gonna live a life that's in constant pursuit of money, doing shady deals and questionable morals and all that you can have money. If you want success, if you want success on your altar, and that's what you worship, then you're gonna be climbing the corporate ladder constantly. You're probably gonna sacrifice relationships. And you're going to be moving from job to job just trying to find what's the next big deal where I can be somebody, be successful. And we put that on our altar. What about beauty? Put beauty on our altar. When we do this, we're never enough. We're never beautiful enough. We need constant attention, and we'll go anywhere to find that attention in order to have someone say, we're beautiful, we're pretty. You have it. But what about strength? I put strength on the altar. When we do that and we worship our strength, then we have to be constantly working out. We have to constantly be fit. And again, we're never good enough and we don't have what it takes because we'll never achieve what we think we need to achieve. What about intelligence? We have a lot of smart people in the room. When we put intelligence, not me, that's you guys, sorry, so in case you're wondering. Because if we put intelligence on the altar, then we always have to be the smartest person in the room. We always are hiding who we truly are because we cannot let anyone know who we truly are inside. Let's get, like, likes, popularity, whatever you want to call it. If you put this on your altar and that's what you pursue, then you'll do anything to get them. And we see that constantly. You will sell your soul to get likes and go viral or become popular, however you want to put it. And this all comes down to identity. And, and all that falls into this, but your identity can fall in a lot of categories. It, it can have to do with race. It can have to do with politics. It can have to do with gender, sexuality. It can be a Broncos fan. That can be your identity. Whatever it is, if that's what you're worshiping and it's coming before God, it's an idol. Because if this is the altar of our lives, then, I mean, God should be at the center. Not only the center, he should be the only thing on the altar. Because when we don't have God at the center of the altar, what are we left with to worship? Me. I become the center of my own life, my own existence, and everything that I am. If we're putting anything on the lives before God, then it's sitting on the altar of our lives. And as David Allen Foster puts it, or David Foster Wallace puts it, that if we put anything before, if we worship anything other than God, we will be eaten alive by whatever we worship. But if we truly want God at the center of our lives, if we truly want God to occupy that altar, it's going to take humility on our part, in every part. It's what Paul says when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Later on in uh, Philippians 3.8, he gives us another example of this, because he says, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered loss of all things and count all this stuff as rubbish. This is garbage. It doesn't mean anything apart from God. In order that I may gain Christ. Those are the words of someone who squarely put God in the center of his life. 
Now, to understand this better, in order to put Christ on the altar, it's going to take humility. And it's going to take our whole being, everything that you are. And to understand this better, we need to bring everything to this, which includes our mind, our body, and our heart. And I think there's no better example in the Bible of someone who did this than Mary of Bethany. And we're going to take a look at her this morning and what she did. And Mary, this is the Mary, she was a sister of Martha and Lazarus, friend of Jesus. But there's probably no greater example of, of humility in every standpoint than we can learn from her. So first off, we, we want to understand like, how to be humble of mind. And, and this is probably not too hard to understand, to be humble of mind, because most of our pride starts in our mind. Like, I should be the jury foreman, of course. It makes perfect sense. We begin to think we're better than we are. We think we deserve something just because we do. We think we're entitled to be treated a certain way because that's just the choices we made or the way our makeup is. But most of our pride begins in our mind. This goes back to our original sin that we think we can replace God on our altar. Instead of God, this goes back to Adam and Eve. This is the original sin. I can be God. I, can be, I don't need God. I can be God. And it starts in our mind, the thinking we're better than we are. So this is where we find Mary. And the first time we meet her is the scene where Jesus came to her house. Jesus came to her house. Think about that for a moment. Jesus came to her house, and from what we know, it's really just her, Martha, and Lazarus at, the, at their house. And Jesus comes, and he's teaching. We see that he's teaching. What would you do in that instance? Well, we find Mary, or Martha, and she's being, uh, getting dinner ready. I mean, she's mixing, she's cooking, she's making this manic scene, she's trying to get everything together. And then we find out in Luke 10, 39, we find that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So where's Mary? At where? At his feet. All right. Stay with me there, okay? So Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus as he's teaching. I can't imagine she wasn't transformed in that moment. We read the words of Jesus and it transforms our lives. She sat at his feet and heard it. But then, of course, Martha starts complaining. So in verse 40, we read that it says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone? I've been abandoned. I'm in the kitchen all by myself. Don't you see me working hard, Lord? Tell her to help me. To which Jesus replies, Martha, Martha, Martha. It's like when my mom used my middle name. Like, oh, man. It's like disappointment. Martha. You're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus is telling Martha that there is really only one thing to be concerned about, and Mary found it, and that's at the feet of Jesus. Good things happen at the feet of Jesus. That's why being a humble mind is so important. In this scene, Martha chose the idol of productivity. That was her idol. She chose that literally over Jesus. I need to be productive. I need to do what I think is best because I need to feed Jesus because that's the most important thing. And that's where she puts her mind. But how often are we doing the same thing in our own lives? That if we just work hard enough, work smart enough, work fast enough, then we can solve the problem. And I, I, I'll do it. I don't need God. I'll do it. I can figure it out. I'll get it done. 
We live in the most individualistic society probably in the history of mankind. A time where we think we know what's best, right? We're God. I don't need to ask him. I know what's best. So we put ourselves on the altar. And you want to know how that's working for us? Yeah, not very well. If, you, if that's a shock, I'll, I have more later. But we have the highest levels of suicide ever recorded. Our mental health issues are beyond anything we can control because we can't keep up with the demand of anxiety, of stress, of fear. We have historic levels of addiction to alcohol, drugs, and prescription drugs that we cannot maintain. We've turned sexuality into a modernized game which leaves everyone hurt, desperate, and wanting. All this because we, like Martha, think we can do it on our own. Because I'm my own God. In our own pride, we think we know what's best. For us, and like Martha, for those around us, right? I know what's best. We have some great words of wisdom from Proverbs 3, 5, which tells us from Solomon, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You need to hear this because apart from God, you're not going to get it right. Apart from God, it's not going to make sense. And like Martha, you're going to try. Oh, you might get rich. You might find success. You might find beauty and strength and wealth. But on a worldly standard, you will never find the peace that passes all understanding in Christ. As long as you sit on the altar. Isaiah 55, 8 tells us that God's thoughts are not like our thoughts. That's what Martha is thinking. I know what's best. I need to give him a good meal. That's what's going to make it right. And he's, he's like, no, that's not it. That's what Jesus is saying here because we have disordered desires in our lives because when we think we know what's right, we have a desire that goes the wrong way and we lead into unhealthy actions and destructive behavior. Martha's actions here are literally a great example of how we want God in our lives. We want God to run our lives and guide our paths. We want Jesus literally and physically in our house. But we want him up there on our terms. We want God on the altar, but we, want, we kind of want to keep our other stuff, don't we? I mean, I, I, don't want, I don't want God completely on the altar. That's just crazy talk. I still have my own needs, wants, and desires. But that's what we see from Martha. But from Mary, what we see is someone who's creating that space to sit at the feet and learn from the master of what's important and what matters. We do this like Mary by humbling ourselves at the feet of Jesus, even if it angers those around us. And like Ephesians 4, 8 says, you know, whatever's pure and honorable and true and lovely and commendable, fix our minds on those things. Because, man, I guarantee 99% of the things I fix my mind on during the week don't matter at all. Until I fix my mind on Jesus and sit at his feet. Again, good things happen at the feet of Jesus. So we need to humble our mind. And next off, we need to humble our bodies. Now, this may sound weird at first, but hear me out. Because how often do our bodies, our desires, lead us astray? How often do we find ourselves doing the things we don't want to do because we've not positioned our bodies in a posture of worship before God? Anyone ever said anything they didn't really want to say out loud? Yeah, I'm the only one? Okay, good. You'll probably hear something later, too. It's good. But we want God to be on the altar of our lives, but we let our own personal pleasures, our own personal desires get in the way. 
the way we see Mary humble her bodies that scene, it's kind of the next scene where, where her brother Lazarus has died. It's been several days, and Jesus finally comes into town in Bethany, and, and Martha goes and runs and meets him and goes, where were you? Kind of scolds him, like, why weren't you here? Because I know if you were here, he would, he would be alive. He would have lived. And then, then she goes back and tells Mary, she goes, Jesus, he's looking for you. He's calling for you. So, so Mary goes out, and we see in John eleven thirty two. It says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at where? His feet. Good things happen at the feet of Jesus. Again, she's at the feet of Jesus, and Mary is taking this humble posture of worship at the foot of Jesus because she knows who he is. She knows he is the Son of God, and he's in walking around on this earth. The humbling of our body, what we see here, is putting ourselves at the feet of Jesus in the midst of suffering. And that's important to understand with what Mary is going through. You know, Mary, she had to be sad. That her brother just died, and, and apparently they're pretty close because of the way that they responded. There had to be grief and suffering. And it's in that moment that she could have turned away and said, Jesus, why weren't you here? And she, she does go, and she does say, like, you know, if you had been here, kind of like Martha. But she says it at the feet of Jesus, not scolding him. Because she knows who Jesus is. And she gives his, her suffering to him instead of putting it on the altar of who it is and who identifies her as. Remember the scriptures that we read earlier, they tell us that our bodies are a temple. That we should be putting our bodies in a posture of a living sacrifice because this is our spiritual act of worship. And that's what we're seeing here because in the midst of suffering, her true character is unveiled. You know what they say about suffering? It doesn't really change you. It just, uh, what do they say? It reveals you. It just shows who your true character really is. So in the midst of suffering, Mary does what she does best and goes to the feet of Jesus. What we do with our bodies matters. And how we respond with them in the midst of suffering will truly reveal what we have on the altar of our lives. Because if we're giving our bodies up to disordered desires like sex, alcohol, drugs, been watching television, social media, popularity, politics, anything else other than God, then our bodies will always be left wanting more. We will never be satisfied. Which is why, like Mary, we need to practice the posture of humility. And this is an interesting thing because I think, is my own opinion, but Mary could only sit at the feet of Jesus in suffering because she sat at the feet of Jesus when he was teaching. She let herself be filled up in that moment that Martha didn't. So that when the suffering came, when the hard times came, she could sit at the feet of Jesus and turn that over to him. You know, Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Let us know what humility matters. It's the people that are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. A statement that's lived out by Mary in her life. Because how many times in the midst of trying times have we allowed our mouths to say something we shouldn't have said? How many times do we allow our bodies to act in a way that's not pleasing to God? How many times do we numb our bodies because we don't like the pain and we just want it to stop? And how many times do we allow our bodies to be used by others, by culture, 
by ideology just because we think they know what's best instead of taking it to God and removing ourselves. That's why we need to humble our bodies in that humble posture before Christ at his feet. And lastly, we need to humble our heart. If we truly want God in the altar of our life, we need a humble heart. And it should probably, come, uh, probably include like having a humble soul as well, kind of your, your internal being. And what's important about this humbling of heart is it cannot exist without gratitude. Because it takes a grateful heart to be humble, and we have a grateful heart and can humble ourselves, then we can be a service to others, which is what we see from Mary. So this, this last time we see her, and probably the, mo- the most amazing, most powerful time, is Mary is in John 12. And this is, this is a scene, so there, there's another dinner party at their house, and Jesus is there. Uh, this time, either some or most of the disciples are there. Martha's in there. And Lazarus there, and this is what we read in verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Where's Mary? And good things happen at Jesus' feet. This is a powerful scene that's happening. I could spend weeks just teaching on this one passage because there's so much going on here. But I got like five minutes, so bear with me for a moment. We have Jesus again. He's coming to Bethany. And this is, this is about a week before he's going to the cross. And there's this dinner party that comes on. Again, it's Jesus. We got Mary. Martha's, you know, she's cooking again. She, she's a great hostess. I bet she made some great food. She's doing her thing. And you have to realize that we also learned from Matthew 26 that Simon the leper was there, which is another great name considering you no, longer, you no longer have leprosy. They still call you that. So he's there. Lazarus is there. Two people who are like walking miracles. They're all sitting at a table because they, they sit on the ground and it's low to the ground. And there's not women at the table. Culturally, there just would have been men at the table. And Mary walks in with this jar of alabaster nard perfume which would have been recognizable as soon as she walked in. But maybe they didn't notice it then. Maybe they didn't notice what was happening because they're all eating, they're all enjoying, they're all talking about being dead and having leprosy and whatever it is they're talking about. But she comes in, she breaks this jar open, and she begins to pour it on Jesus' feet. And I have to imagine at that point, everything got real quiet. There wasn't any clanging silverware dishes. What is she doing? She pours this expensive perfume on his feet. And instead of using water, just soap, she uses her hair to dry him off instead of a towel. You see, when you wash someone's feet, that's one of the biggest acts of humility there is. Even in this time, the lowliest servant would have been the one who washed the the person's feet who came in the door. Yet here's Mary at Jesus' feet, taking it to a whole other level of washing his feet in gratitude, in service to the king. She doesn't just come to him as a simple act of service, like, oh, someone forgot to wash his feet, I should do that. She came to him because that's what he deserved. That's who he was. 
And you have to think, did she know what was about to happen? Did she know what was about to happen to Jesus? Because even Jesus in Matthew 26, 12 goes, leave her alone. She's preparing me for burial. Because what did she learn at the feet of Jesus? Now, the problem with our hearts is we have desires. We want things to happen in a certain way, and most of those are good. But when they come disorder, when we go to the wrong places, that's where lust and greed and lying and all these things become disordered because we've gotten the wrong places on our altar. We have the wrong things on the altar. This is why Proverbs so adamantly says, guard your heart. Now, again, this is my own opinion, but I do not think Mary could have gone in there and washed Jesus' feet if she hadn't sat and listened to his teaching. I don't think she would have had the gratitude to go in there and dry his feet with her hair if she hadn't laid at his feet in a deep time of suffering. Mary comes to Jesus in, in a deep and amazing act of gratitude, and it's that count others more significant than yourself part of Philippians 2. So let's try to tie this together. You see, in the first scene, Mary could have put productivity, like getting things done, having a good house, helping out Martha on the altar. But instead, she put Jesus. And that next scene, when her brother died in deep time of suffering, she could have put that grief, put that pain, put that suffering in the altar. But she put Jesus. And even that last scene, she could have put shame. She could have put embarrassment. She could have been that, I, I don't want to make a scene. I don't, I don't want to bother dinner. But instead, she put Jesus. And she participated in probably one of the greatest acts of worship ever done that we'll never get to experience at that level. What a powerful example for Mary of how we should be living our lives. You know, Psalms 25.9 says, God guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Pretty simple. With a humble mind, I don't care about what I'm doing. I care about what God's doing in my life, and I'll go that path over my path any day. Tim Keller kind of frames this up best by simply stating, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or even thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Because most of the idols we're putting in our altar is because we cannot think of anything else but ourselves. As I touched on in the beginning of the passage, we're living in one of the, the biggest culture changes that ever happened in the history of mankind. I mean, just think back five years ago, what the things were like, ten years ago. Things are changing at a rapid pace, and it all has to do with me. My thoughts, my actions, my beliefs, what I want, my body, whatever it is, it's my, 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 my. It's about me. Because when we only think about ourselves, rarely do good things happen. The end of that line becomes anger, disappointment, desperation, or frustration. Because life will never turn out the way we want to. And I can't tell you how many situations I've been in and talking with people, if they just had an ounce of humility, the situation would have turned out so different. But they can't get beyond themselves. This is not... You know, there's very few Instagram influencers out there who are satisfied with their likes. Very few CEOs who are happy with how much money they're making. Very few 
creators out there of maybe art or music that are happy with what they created. Because if you don't have God at the center, then you're never happy. It's never going to happen. Because enough is never, there's, there's never enough. You're constantly searching for that, constantly trying to find out more. So with that in mind, we really only have two options. We can keep doing what we're doing, even though it's not working. We're pretty good at that. And just hope that something changes. Hope that this constant loop of anxiety, stress, just breaks magically. Or we can make a change. And we can choose to humble ourselves to God and truly let him reside solely on the altar of our lives. Because we truly know and understand that he has our best interest in mind. We've attempted to do it on, and it's time to admit it's kind of a train wreck. Because let's go back to our passage and look at how Jesus lived his life as we wrap this up. In verse 7, it tells us that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, do you get that? He emptied himself. Jesus, in achieving all that he did, did not pursue success, fame, or notoriety. He emptied himself. He made himself less, which is the greatest irony of life because most of the pursuits in our life come of our selfish ambition to get what we want. But here's Christ giving us an example, creating the greatest movement to ever sweep across the world by making himself less. To understand this better, if you're going to attempt to create a global movement, man, you'd be getting people together, you'd be training them, you'd have a great blog, you'd be podcasting with people out there, you'd be out handing out flyers, you'd be trying to go viral, because man, if you can go viral, you got it, that's golden, you're going to make it. Yet here's Jesus, in, in several scenes, he's raising people from the dead, he's giving sight to the blind, and what we see in Mark 1 is that he healed a leper. Now, you want to go viral, I'm pretty sure if you heal somebody, that's going to do it. That's that, like, golden nugget of moving to the next level. Yet, here's Jesus in the midst of all those going up to the person and going, hey, yeah, can we just keep that between you and me? Like, let's not tell anybody. Think of yourself less. That's what Jesus was showing us. Because that makes no sense if you want to create a worldwide movement. But that's the glory of quoting Keller and thinking of yourself less. Because when you do that and you have God, when you take yourself off the altar and let God be God, and, I, and I'm not talking like even sharing the altar. I mean, you're clearing out the altar. You take everything off the altar that's not God. Then you've given yourself a tremendous place to be the person that God created you to be instead of who you think you should be. Because if we truly want to live out the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, it's going to start by humbling ourselves, clearing off the altar, not sharing it, clearing it off, and letting God solely reside there. This is what Jesus knew, and this is what Paul is telling this church of Philippians, that if you just humble yourselves for the kingdom of God, you'll do more things than you can possibly imagine. So as the worship team comes up, I want to leave you with this challenge. I want you to think this week, what's on your altar? What are you sharing the altar with? We all have something, folks. Do you need to humble your mind? Do you need to humble your body? Do you need to humble your heart? 
What does that look like for you? I challenge you this week to think about what is on your altar. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for the example of Mary. Thank you for for giving us someone who just lived at your feet, Lord. Humbled herself in a posture of worship, no matter the circumstances, no matter the embarrassment or shame. She did it because she knew it was right in serving you. And I pray that as we leave this place and we go about our week, Lord, that we can look at our own lives and find out what's on my altar, Lord. Where do I need to humble myself to you? And truly just release my expectations, my wants, my desires, and let them be your desires for your kingdom and your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.